Hello everyone, welcome to that food podcast. My name's Stu and I'm joined by Pie God, Matt Huntley. Matt, how are you doing this week? <laughs> wow, what an intro. That's the best one yet. Thank you very much. Um, I'll take Pie God any day. So yeah, top of the morning to you and happy St. Patrick's Day. Also, happy birthday, may I just say, to my nephew Thomas Patrick, who turns 15 today. Um, so happy birthday to you and well, now that I've managed to offend the Irish and the Welsh in the space of two weeks, how are you, my friend? I'm very good, thank you. I've had a, a very productive week. I've managed to get into the kitchen a lot more than I wanted to with some fantastic cooking, some excellent discoveries, and also a mammoth kitchen disaster, um, as, as always. So one of the dishes I've cooked this week, uh, my wife last... I think it was even like last Thursday, I think it was, when I messaged you sort of some of these images. And she was like, oh, should we just do fish finger sandwiches for dinner? And don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with a delicious fish finger sandwich. Some people put cheese in it, toast the bread, bit of mayonnaise, bit of salad in there. Very, very nice. But I thought, I wonder if I can find any recipes that are any, any you know, zhuzh it up a bit. So I had a quick look and... The queen of the kitchen, Nigella, came up with a fantastic little recipe, the <laughs> fish finger border, which was phenomenal. We cooked it. I think you got involved as well, didn't you, with this? We did. We tried this one. So you sent me the, the link to the recipe, and it was certainly up our streets. So we gave it a go, and I have to say we really enjoyed it, uh, especially, and I'm sure you're about to mention this, but the uh, the pickled red onions as well. They were lovely. Yeah, I... I saw this in this recipe, so um, we'll post a link to this border on our social media links um, at that food podcast, sorry, at that food pod across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and it's basically fish fingers, you've got chilies in there as well, but as an accompaniment to it, you had to make something called pink onions. Now, when I was in Sweden um, in, would have been 2016, um, I'd just been on like a a little tour around Sweden, Russia, Estonia, Finland, uh, around that area. And on my flight home, I sat down, had a like a, a falafel burger in the airport, and it came with these really delicious pink pickled onions. Um, so what you do, um, you basically chop up your red onion into half moons, pop them in a jar, and then either pour in um, red wine vinegar or lime juice. And you leave them for between two to 24 hours. Um, I, left, I started having mine on the same day, but I had follow-up the next day because I made enough because I thought if these are as tasty, then I can follow through into the next day. The vibrancy of that colour in any dish was brilliant. I had some in a toasted cheese sandwich the next day. I had them as part of a chicken satay salad um, with, with my leftover salad. I like to do this on a Saturday. So if I go out shopping on a Saturday, if there's any leftover salad um, in the bottom of my fridge, it's a case of just chuck it all in, sometimes a bit of balsamic, bring it back to life if it's starting to wilt a little bit, but there's no point in wasting it, it's still all good. But these pink onions, oh my goodness, Oof. so easy to make and so tasty. So nice, they were delicious. It says in the recipe you'll probably be using these again and again on different dishes, and once again, Nigella is correct. Really good dish. Yeah, we'll pop that up on the uh, social medias at uh, that food podcast so go check it out for yourself as well i did have uh obviously i had a i cooked a sunday roast for mother's day this sunday happy mother's day to all the mothers out there congratulations for raising wonderful children 
<laughs> including those who do food podcasts. <laughs> so, um, but I did a roast pork loin that weekend and managed to make beautiful crackling on top of it that my daughter even got involved with as I called them meat crisps. <laughs> Ah, is that your workaround <laughs> for that one, was it? <laughs> it was certainly more successful than the other two dishes that I made. One of them was very nice. One of them was an absolute failure. The one which was very nice that she wouldn't eat, I made a, um, a chicken and gnocchi bake, uh, hmm. which was very good. But Harriet didn't eat it. She tried eating what we dubbed cloud pasta to try and get around it. <laughs> she looked at it and uh, she wasn't having any of it and having a, a mini meltdown. But me and my wife, Leanne, enjoyed it quite a lot. But the other dish I made, I found a, um, and the uh, chicken and gnocchi bake was a Joe Wicks recipe. And that was very okay. nice, very easy to make. Nice. Um, but on to the horrible recipe. So I sent you an image <laughs> of this. I decided to try and make a pasta pizza. So you would oh, use yeah. rigatoni as the base, but you're having it as a... Um, as of uh, putting the, the tubes up vertically in, let's say, a cake tin. <laughs> First of all, have you ever tried to stuff a cake tin with vertical rigatoni <laughs> about it falling over? I, I can't say I have. How did it work out for you? <laughs> Flipping ages. Absolute ice age. I, I, I was waiting for like my sauce to simmer. I was like, 15 minutes to let this simmer. Hmm. Well, I, I'll start doing the stacking and I'll probably have a bit of time mm. to do something else and maybe start loading the dishwasher. 15 minutes had gone. I still hadn't managed to stuff the tin of rigatoni. It kept falling down. <laughs> and at that stage, what well, this is a disaster anyway. But nonetheless, I persevered, got my, uh, got my rigatoni stacked, got my topping on, popped it in the oven to bake. It started to look... And when I took it out, I thought, this is brilliant. This is going to be great. Opened up the tin, which you're supposed to. The whole thing just imploded. <laughs> and all I was left with of an undercooked, baked rigatoni mess. Oh, you showed me uh, a picture of the recipe on the website. So, yeah, it looks like a tall pizza. And so, in theory, it looks lovely. Really nicely presented. I'm assuming yours wasn't quite the case. Yours is a... Uh, not a tall pizza, but a flat pizza, a messy pizza, <laughs> kind of pasta all over the place, was it? You can tell if things go really badly that I don't even bother taking a photograph of it, because at least the pineapple <laughs> upside down cake was funny. Whereas this was just, I wanted to throw it in the bin. I was sat there sulking, eating it. And even my daughter was going, this doesn't taste very nice. And for once uh, I said, yeah, you're right. This is horrible. Let's never eat this again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, not trying any tricks on that one. No uh, cloud pasta or... <laughs> Or, uh, yeah, crisps. No. I mean, the mozzarella was nice. I enjoyed the mozzarella, but the uh, under <laughs> undercooked rigatoni baked in an oven. No, it's not for me. I don't think I did anything wrong with it. I followed the instructions. I just think it was a terrible recipe. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, well, in our kitchen this week, we have been trying to, uh, on our continued search for a authentic takeaway uh, Chinese taste, we have been making... Chinese food again. So we had, uh, Amy and I had Chinese World Food Club on Saturday and we used recipes from a Chinese takeaway cookbook written by chef and broadcaster Kuolin Wan, uh, who is a, uh, again, chef and broadcaster and also the brother of Gok Wan, apparently. So, oh, really? um, yeah. So we, lots of frying involved. So very unhealthy. So lots of oil, lots of frying um, but 
the unhealthiness was outbalanced by the tastiness. It was really, really good. Really good. So we made we made um, prawn toast, which was probably my favourite dish, I think, out of all the ones that we made. Just because, I don't know if you've made prawn toast before, Stu. I think you may have done. But I thought when you get it from a takeaway, it was made by perhaps a magician <laughs> or some sort of conjurer. Um but to make it at home and actually see the process, as with all these things, I said to you before, like I'm always amazed how easy these things can be actually. So you take, uh, you take prawns and you take egg and um, it's also flour as well. And then you grind it up into a, in a blender. And then you spread this paste on top of uh, some bread, really easy. And then you sprinkle it with sesame seeds as well. And then you fill up a pan with oil and you fry it. Really, really simple, really, really tasty. I was well impressed. We had other things as well. So we had satay chicken, uh, a variation on chicken chow mein as well. And all of it was really good. And again, trying to sort of achieve that authentic Chinese taste. And we're certainly getting there. You know, I, I think as we've discussed before, it can't be a takeaway and it's nice to have a treat and it does have that certain taste about it. It just can't beat at, the, at home. Um, what I would say is that a lot of these recipes, and it's not just uh, this guy's book, but I find this in Chinese recipes throughout, is that there's a lot of use of white pepper. And I'm not sure that I particularly enjoy the taste of white pepper. It's quite overpowering. I think maybe just in the future I might use a little bit less or possibly leave it out completely. Um, but my big success of the week, my favourite dish that I've cooked this week, and I just want to give us a big shout out, is my turkey and leek pie. <laughs> I sent, uh, well, I put a picture up on Twitter yesterday and you commented on it and I think you were quite impressed, Stu. I love a pie and it looks phenomenal. <laughs> so we obviously, our roots uh, getting to the, towards uh, making this food podcast is that we initially had a pie club uh, where we would get together on a monthly basis when we could and enjoy a pie. So... You know, not ones that we made ourselves, but just ones that we would buy in and sample and, you know, do a little rate and review between the two of us. Um, however, I've started getting into making my own pies now, and this turkey and leek pie was fantastic. Really, really tasty. So it's actually some turkey that I've... <laughs> might sound a bit weird to some people, I don't know, but we had some turkey left over from Christmas that's so in the freezer. Um, and we're trying to clear out our freezer at the moment so we can defrost it eventually because we've got a lot of stuff in there it's starting to get a bit over iced so we just you know can't get into drawers and things like that because they're getting jammed up so we just try to use everything up that we have in there and i found a box of turkey that i've kind of forgotten about to be honest with you so we took it out defrosted it made this pie it was a hairy bikers recipe uh so thank you hairy bikers um as you know they are semi-banned in our household <laughs> because <laughs> because <laughs> Amy's a Mackham, she's from Sunderland in the northeast of England, and they're, I think they're roundabouts from Newcastle, and for those that don't know, Sunderland and Newcastle have a bit of a, um, I was, I was going to say friendly rivalry, but I don't think <laughs> no, that's the case. No. <laughs> I think they just hate each other. So they are semi-banned in our household. Um, however, she did actually buy me this Harry Biker's book, so I think she's starting to let that one go slightly. Um, but the real key for me was topping the pie with cranberry sauce and Ooh. allowing the heat to allow this tasty cranberry sauce to melt over the top of it and the flavor of the two combined was perfect 
That sounds delicious. I mean, all pies are good, but as you said, just having that added little extra of the cranberry on top seeping through, absolutely delicious. It was. The sweetness of the cranberry plus the savoury from the, the meat and the leeks. Perfect combination. Highly recommend it. I know it sounds like a Christmas dish and it's March, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have much food wastage? Because obviously the whole idea, like you said there, we're the same. We've still got some turkey left over from Christmas in the freezer. We're working through it. Um, although I'm very much like like you guys are. I'm a fan of defrosting my freezer. My wife is one of these fans of, oh, just hack at it with a knife. That'll sort out the defrosting to get in that drawer. Uh, but did you find you had much food wastage uh, with either your Chinese cooking or your pie? Hang on, let me think. No, not really. I think we've done quite well. It's something, again, that Amy's always been very conscientious of, but now that I'm very much on board as well, much, you know, th- uh, thanks to doing this podcast, I've become much more aware of it. So relatively very little food waste. Uh, I suppose... No, I was going to say, you know, we've got bones left over from the ribs that we did, but, you know, we can't really eat the bones. I suppose we could have made a stock out of it, but I didn't on this occasion, although I do love a stock. Uh, how about you? Have you had any food waste to uh, make mention of this week? Or have you found, I suppose more helpfully, have you found any inventive ways to use food waste or potential food waste? Well, I haven't found any uh, ways personally of using food waste, but this leads us nicely into food in the news this week. And researchers in the US have found um, something to do with waste food. As you would have heard on the last few episodes of that food podcast, um, we speak a bit about food wastage and some of the stats that have been involved in how much food is wasted in the UK on a daily basis. Um, if you want to go back and listen to those, you can check out our archive on your podcast podcast app of preference. But what I discovered, um, well, I didn't discover it. The scientists in the US have discovered they found a new approach to making jet fuel from fuel from food waste that's going to potentially reduce carbon emissions from flying. So. Um, as we've established on previous podcasts, most of uh, food scraps that are used for energy around the world are converted into methane gas. But research in the US have found a way of turning this waste into a type of paraffin that works in jet engine works in jet engines. So the authors of this study feel that this could cut greenhouse gas emissions by 165% in comparison to fossil energy. And I thought that's incredible that you're now taking this waste food that there's so much of, and if you can turn this into jet fuel, I mean, 165% reduction in comparison to fossil fuels is incredible. And in a time where the aviation industry is going to be facing some difficult decisions, especially about you know, when we're going to get travel back to, to be the global juggernaut of an industry that it is, whilst also maintaining these climate goals that every country, uh, a lot of countries in the world want to achieve, is this going to be something with all these green energies that governments and researchers around the world are going to start looking into? Well, it's, I hope so. It's the, the science that we need currently, isn't it? If we're going to get on track to reduce carbon emissions uh, to the point where we are zero net, we need to move forward with these sorts of things. So that's fantastic news. Um, with uh, we're talking about methane gas from cows as well, haven't we, in the past? Now, I have seen some mad stuff about trying to convert that as well, but I'm not sure if the science will allow it. Um, but 
no, that's really, really good stuff. Yeah, so that's going to, they're going to continue to do this. So essentially, for those to not be overly too scientific with it, so a lot of this uh, wastewater is termed wet waste. And um, in its present form, it's turning into methane gas. But these researchers found a way of um, interrupting this process of turning it into methane. So it could be... Um, so it can produce volatile fatty acids known as a VFA instead of CH4 for the methane. And then they're able to use a form of catalytic conversion to upgrade the VFA to two different forms of sustainable paraffin. So I think things like this, and as you said, and we mentioned on a previous podcast about the use of technology uh, with like the vertical farms as well, yeah. that's going to be really, really helpful. And hopefully a lot more people are going to start looking at this usage, especially if you think, let's say, the aviation industry, how much money would it cost them to buy however much you know, fuel to get across the Atlantic versus how much is it going to cost them to buy a ton of waste food and use the processes to get it in place? So hopefully the cost savings will be there long term and hopefully the environmental savings will be there. But then... Do you see like all these, these things in like movies where people are running their cars on chip fat oil... Um, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So we'll keep an eye on this over the next few months. Sure. One of the other areas in the news, um, in the UK, uh, we had officially left the European Union on the 1st of January um, of 2021. And there are supposed to be stringent checks on British exports, but these have been delayed for a further six months. So farming organisations had criticised the government's decision to delay these post-Brexit checks uh, on imports for a further six months. So these were originally supposed to come in on the 1st of April 2021. And we're now looking at the 1st of October to start getting these pre-notifications and export health certificates for animal produce. And... Whilst I looked at the the concept behind this, the reason why they extended this deadline for not having these stringent checks is because of fears of um, shortages in the food supply. But the farmers are obviously there. There's a bit of a mix and match. So they some are a fan of delaying them. Some are not happy about it because obviously it's affecting the quality of goods being brought into the UK. But then when I found dug a little bit deeper, there are fears that criminal groups are going to start getting involved in this as a way to try and bypass these laws and ways of getting in not too healthy versions of these these foods so rather than sitting in a dock waiting for days and potentially losing shelf life some groups are concerned that as these checks aren't in place there'll be different types of disease and infection from these from food produce that's coming in without these checks now we're outside the eu now i think for the large food distributors this isn't going to be as much of an issue because i think they're still going to have their own internal checks in place but it just made me start thinking of well some of the some little cafes some little takeaways they might go oh, we can get it from this distributor for a lot cheaper and a lot quicker without having to do all the paperwork. So it just made me start thinking, obviously, the regulation, like we've mentioned before, as we mentioned on last week's episode about the, the traffic light system, mm. that is the risk of a food shortage worth potentially six months of delays and a lack of quality in the food that's being brought over to us from, from importing from other countries? 
Yeah, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because you obviously want to make sure that things are regulated correctly in terms of processes that lead to things being imported and outported. But also these things open up uh, the opportunity for people who are looking to make uh, a quick buck um, to kind of do things under the counter, if you like. Well, and it, and it just highlighted the idea for me of germs and potential disease and issues with food. And then I spotted a very interesting article uh, to finish off food news today. Now, you and I are in our mid-30s, let's say early, late (laughs) 30s. So we are not not familiar with some of these social media platforms, uh, but something has started trending on TikTok um, on the social media platform. Brace yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, because this may surprise you. Over on TikTok, viral videos have shown people sitting backwards on the loo and facing the cistern or the flusher whilst watching Netflix and having snacks. (laughs) So it's a trend that started with a TikToker called Amy Wo, and she claims it's a life hack, and she sent this out to her 11.6 million followers that basically her exact <laughs> her exact quote was this. You have been pooping wrong, she says. What I want you to do is poop backwards. Get your favourite snacks, get your favourite shows that you like to watch. It's the best of all times. And you just go and watch TV. People, other TikTokers joined in. So adding their iPad to watch Netflix while drinking Corona and eating crisps. It's not... an a bathroom is not an environment to eat food, but I just thought 11.6 million people have seen this lady claim this is a life hack. Guys, I, I know, I'm pretty sure our listener base will probably echo the agreement here. You don't need to take your food or drink to the bathroom with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one thing to say about this. I hate TikTok. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> It just winds me up so much. Things like this are encouraged, uh, and they shouldn't be. Do not eat and poo at the same time. <laughs> is, is that a T-shirt? Do not eat and poo at the same time. <laughs> you can check out our merch on WWE. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but it just blows my mind. You are in a bathroom. I mean, don't get me wrong. I will, I will wholeheartedly say when I was on my honeymoon i was in las vegas there was a big bathroom and i ordered cake and i ate it cat in the hat style in the bath nice but you weren't taking a poo at the same time definitely not in my own bath no (laughs) (laughs) other people's baths yes but not my own (laughs) not in your own (laughs) but that's um that's right then I mean, that that's the end of food in the news. I think that's the end of anyone wanting to use TikToks. If 11.6 million people followed this girl and this is her... I mean, surely this content isn't suitable for young people to view. I mean, crikey. It's amazing, isn't it? How does that even get past the uh, censors or regulators or whatever? That's, <laughs> it's a mad world. It's a mad world that I don't quite understand anymore. <laughs> And soon people will be preparing food whilst in their bathroom and avoiding importing checks as part of this EU <laughs> legislation. <laughs> oh, dear. But, but anyway, on the subject of the EU with a terrible tenuous link, we are celebrating our friends across the sea 
over in Ireland. Today, we are recording this on the 17th of March, 2021, and it is St. Patrick's Day for our friends over in Ireland. Um, it is a public holiday in the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador, which is uh, for their provincial government employees, and also the British Overseas Territory of Montserrat. So it is a happy uh, public holiday day to you guys over there, obviously due to the pandemic celebrations aren't going to be as uh, as as vast as they have been pre-pandemic but if you are celebrating and you are enjoying your time we hope you have a lovely St Patrick's Day but Matt do you know much about St Patrick's Day I no not really um I'm hoping you might be able to fill us in on that one I've got some connections to Ireland I've uh, my my nana bet Elizabeth was born in I'm sorry if I butchered the pronunciation of this this town's name, uh, but Bagsnell's town in County Carlow. She was born uh, 26th of February 1916. Um, and it's a little town on the southeast corner of Ireland. Um, and also, as I mentioned last week, my sister actually lived in Northern Ireland. Um, I know it's the wrong end, but it's you know still my connection, I guess, to a certain extent. And I, I would have visited her in the 90s as well um, during my teens when, when she lived out there. And we actually did do a tour uh, sort of looping around uh, Sutton in the north of Ireland and then going around the Republic. So I have, I have seen a fair bit of my time. Uh, again, it was in my teens, for so it's not for many years, um, but happy memories for sure. So tell me a bit more about St. Patrick's Day. So St. Patrick's Day was made an official uh, feast day in the early 17th century and was observed by um, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church uh, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it commemorates St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. And it celebrates the heritage of, of the Irish in general. Um, celebrations sometimes involve parades, festivals, um, the wearing of green attire and shamrocks. People think that's cliche, but it genuinely does happen. And um, so uh, Christians who belong to these um, and attend the church service and historically uh, the Lenten restrictions on eating and drinking alcohol were lifted for the day and was in, um, and has encouraged and encouraged sort of a holiday stereotype of alcohol consumption um, on these days. But I was... Um, in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day, I think it was about six, possibly seven years ago, because I was there for work. And again, being a little bit naive to it, because someone who doesn't drink doesn't sort of, I don't have any sort of Irish links in my family. So it's never been something I've gone, oh, it's St. Patrick's Day, I've celebrated it, blah, blah. But I was out there for St. Patrick's Day for work. And I always thought it was strange that I'd have a day of just in the hotel, because normally you'd have like three days at a client and that would be it. But I had two, a gap, and then one day and then fly home on that day. Crikey. What <laughs> a festival atmosphere it is. Like there was, um, I was staying in Dublin 6 um, at the time. And just the festivities and the, sort of the, the uh, embrace of nature, the collaborative nature there in Dublin 6 was phenomenal it was such a good time very very welcoming for someone who is essentially an outsider welcomed into the celebrations and just these seas of green and these parades and festivals it was such a great experience to be part of and would you believe it the next day when i was supposed to be doing work half the clients didn't bother turning up <laughs> who would have uh, thought uh, it? <laughs> were they a little bit hungover by any chance i have no idea who knows where they ended up but they were <laughs> 
they were certainly there. So the whole idea, obviously, you know, celebrating St. Patrick's Day led us to uh, our recipe of the week where I wanted to try and find something that is very close to Irish hearts. And we picked a dish which had white pudding in, which features quite a lot in Irish breakfast. Now, Irish cuisine uh, in general, I think charitably it can be described as hearty. It's, it's very full of flavour, very keeps your tummy full. Um, normally involving meat, sort of lamb and pork, potatoes, cabbage, long cooking times. Spice is normally limited to things like salt and pepper. But some classic Irish dishes, um, if you are familiar with these or not, you've got things like boxty, and again, apologies if I'm butchering some of these pronunciations, which are potato pancakes. We've got champ, which is mashed potato spring onions, coddle, which is stew with potato, stewed potato sausages and bacon, which is a speciality in Dublin. I've had that on many occasions on my trips there. Cole Cannon, which you have made me when we had a pie club, I think. I did, yeah. Maybe some Cole Cannon to go with one of our pies we're having. Yeah. And obviously we've got things like mixed grills, Irish breakfast, which has got our black and white pudding in there, uh, bacon and cabbage, which is a popular and traditional meal in rural Ireland, and seafood pie, which again, I've had the experience of when I was in Shannon and it was sort of locally sourced fish and it was absolutely delicious. Melted cheese on the top as well of a seafood pie. Outstanding. Very, very tasty. Have you had any experiences, obviously, from your tour around Ireland in, in the 90s? Can you have any food memories from your time in Ireland? I'm just trying to think. I mean, I was, again, quite young and it's a few years ago now, so my memory is failing me slightly. Um, obviously, I was too young at the time to partake but we did do a tour of the um guinness uh, brewery and again that's perhaps where my love of brewery tours came from uh and i think we also did the uh, failing to remember the name of the whiskey but the uh the one of the more famous whiskeys out there as well the uh is that jack daniels the, uh, no that's no, tennessee jack daniels <laughs> might be tennessee yeah um however we did a couple of like brewery tours and things like that um which again might attribute to my love of beer <laughs> <laughs> and all things alcoholic. Um, but I do have, cause I know we do have some, um, a little bit of wrestling crossover with this pod as well. I do have a fun wrestling related memory, uh, which takes me back to the Republic of Ireland in 2003. So I thought I'd touch on that a little bit. So uh, we do have, Again, a little bit of a crossover. We have people who are obviously foodies and we have people who are wrestling fans um, and those that meet in the middle. So in December 2003, I was actually invited out to perform as a pro wrestler in uh, Dublin's, Dublin sorry, National Basketball Arena. So it was a brand new promotion called Win. Don't ask me what that stood for. I can't remember. But obviously some uh, wrestling related pun. Uh, so it's when wrestling staged their first ever show, and it was entitled, again, another terrible wrestling pun coming up, Christmas Presents. Brilliant. Not P-R-S-E-N-T-S, <laughs> but P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. So lovely. As we can always rely on pro wrestling, uh, indie pro wrestling in particular, a terrible pun. Um, so top in the card, this event was... Uh, Headlined by former WWE, WCW, ECW wrestler Perry Saturn. And also it was uh, headlined by uh, another ECW legend in the form of 
Sandman. Also appearing on that night would be a British-based promotion uh, called UCW, including that food podcast's very own, Van Wicked. Uh, that's me, if you don't know. He's a big uh, deal. Who wrestled... <laughs> <laughs> so my stage name, my wrestling stage name, we haven't really delved into that too much in the past, uh, was and is Van Wicked. I've had very variations on, on that in the past, Mr. Wicked, Coach Wicked, and things like that. Um, but that evening, I wrestled my old friend, the mailman, who is now known as JD Knight. Uh, I heard he a... always delivers. Very good. He, yes, Wrestling part. <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit. I've got a story that kind of branches out on that in a moment. But we had a terrible parcel on the pole match. <laughs> so parcel on the pole match is... For those that have no concept of wrestling, it might be quite hard to explain, but I'll do my best here. Basically, you have your wrestling ring and you have a scaffolding pole attached to a corner post. And at the top of that scaffolding pole, this is going up uh, vertically in the air. At the top of that pole is a parcel. Now, obviously, this falls into two categories here. We've got the mailman who always delivers his parcels. Also, it's Christmas, so it's a Christmas themed wrap parcel. And in that parcel was a, and this is where re- wrestling becomes ridiculous. And when you try to explain it to norms, it's very hard to justify. But in that parcel was a brick, a house brick. <laughs> the first one to get the house brick, the first one to get the, the uh, house brick and parcel could use it as a weapon. Now, great. Again, if you're not a wrestling fan, very hard to justify the, the the means behind this. But the big problem here was within about a minute of the match starting, the pole fell over. <laughs> so it made a brick of Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it had as much structure as your pasta stew. It fell over to the ground, <laughs> thus removing the whole point and the gimmick of the match. And therefore... Uh, JD or the mailman and I just had to kind of scrabble around and uh, figure something out on the fly. Uh, to be honest, I think it's set up to be a bit of a rubbish match anyway. Um, but, you know, we had fun out there. And actually, you're just saying about mailman always delivers. One of his, his uh, wrestling spots or moves for the non-wrestling fans out there would it be to send you off the ropes. So you bounce into ropes and come back. He'd put his hands out and go, whoa, 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 stop. You reach into his pocket. And he'd pull out an envelope and he goes, the mailman always delivers. And then delivers a big old uh, clothesline, knocks you to the floor. And it received sometimes a nice pop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good grief. I mean, I, I think the reception to food podcast is already better than any reception to um, wrestling podcasts <laughs> or wrestling in general. <laughs> but uh, that's the thing, though, isn't it? It's it's the opportunity that wrestling's given uh, people to obviously travel and experience these different cultures. Yeah. And I can imagine probably being a, uh, from, from obviously wrestling times myself, it's a case of after the show, I can imagine that was probably quite an outing. It was. So again, it, it's given me opportunities to travel and meet new people and meet people who I thought I may never meet as well. So to hang out in a bar with, uh, again, you know, ECW legend, Sandman, uh, was really fun. You know, we had a few drinks and things and he told stories about some of his colleagues, some you know famous wrestlers that I very much appreciated at the time. Um, I won't go into them now, but 
yeah, create good opportunities and the the chance to go out to Dublin and perform out there in front of a different crowd was was amazing. So yeah, good memories there. So do you think however, the Sandman knows the difference between black and white pudding? <laughs> Did that come up in your conversations? Well, uh, again, it's a long time ago, <laughs> so I can't quite remember. But I think it might have done at one point. No, I, to be fair, I'm or I wasn't sure of the difference between white and black pudding. So this has been an education for me. I thought I'd had white pudding in the past, but actually, upon buying it and eating it, I don't think I have. I've definitely had black pudding because Amy's. Uh, father actually serves it with uh, a fry up if we were to go and visit up there in the northeast uh, he will put that as a, a side on a fry up and you know I, I enjoy it and it's very tasty but I didn't realize what white pudding was um, but no complaints did you want to sort of uh, touch on the differences there so a lot of people are not a fan of the concept of black pudding or white pudding or of, of this pudding type so black pudding, sometimes known as blood pudding, is, is, is broad, you know, white pudding and black pudding are broadly similar, but white pudding doesn't include the blood. Um, modern recipes normally consist of suet or fat or oatmeal or barley, breadcrumbs, and in some case, uh, pork and pork livers. Um, and it's filled in, um, obviously, in the, the traditional sausage casing, which you obviously cut off when you're... Uh, when you're cooking but that's the main difference white pudding no blood black pudding blood um white pudding from my experience it has a milder flavor in comparison to black pudding but black pudding i have loved from the first time i tried it i know it's a bit of a seems to be like a marmite option that people won't try it because they go oh it's just it's pig's blood oh it's Mm. yucky first of all it isn't it's delicious and then if you're if it's if you're bothered by the pig's blood have the white pudding because there's no pig's blood in it at all and it's a much milder flavor um some of my early memories of things like black pudding um it just appeared on breakfast plates as you said and one of the things i used to enjoy doing uh pre-parenting and pre-marriage me and my friend rob would go camping and i think we mentioned before so again because our our enjoyment of things like the outdoor world and, and camping in general the excitement one day when Rob just bought out this this cooker that could not only toast at the same time, but you could have the hob at the same time. And just being able to have like a black pudding bap for breakfast whilst camping was so, so good. And also from all my treks up to visit him in Nottingham, we always out of, uh, out of necessity would go and visit the Little Chef when it was open. And we would have an Olympic breakfast knowing for we'd feel ill for the rest of the day after eating it. But it was always... Always delicious. Black Olympic breakfast, extra black pudding. Delicious. Nice. Yeah, very very filling, but worth it, I'm sure. Um, so white pudding reminded me a little bit of um, haggis, the Scottish dish, right? So that's kind of similar taste. And I think it's because the, uh, the ingredients are similar, aren't they? So you have like a, a meat base, uh, which in the case of the white pudding is pork. Uh, but also it uses oatmeal as well, doesn't it, from what I understand. And I think that's kind of some similar crossover there with the, the haggis um, and a, a mix of spices as well. Uh, so in terms of getting hold of the ingredients, I was surprised how easy it was to get white pudding. Um, it's not something I've considered buying previously, and I thought it might be something that you might have to get from a butcher or a deli counter. 
but I was, I was really impressed that I was able to find it very easily in my local supermarket. Uh, it's just in one of the chilled aisles, actually. So, um, yeah, super easy to get hold of. Uh, did you have any issues getting hold of any of the ingredients or uh, where did you get your white pen from? So as I'd ordered my pork loin from my butcher, I'd also contacted the deli counter at the farm shop that I go to to say, could you get me in some white pudding? But I also thought, similar to what you, when you said about the accessibility of white pudding, I also, when I sent you a picture last night, that wasn't the only frittata I made. So I also ordered some black pudding because I thought, well, I need to test this with both to see, because if people can't readily get white pudding, and it is quite readily available if you look for it, but I also got some black pudding, and I doubled up this week. I created oh. my dish with white pudding. I also created my dish with black pudding to see if there's a notable difference between the two. Ooh. You little devil, you. <laughs> Doubling up. <laughs> well, it, it was my fear as the, the week went on, because... When I went to order it, as you said, if you go into a supermarket, I think it's quite readily to see. If you do like an online order, whether it's delivered or click and collect, I found it quite difficult to locate. And I thought, have I picked a recipe that one of the main ingredients people can't readily access from a supermarket? I said I was quite lucky that my local farm shop, the local deli, could get hold of some for me. But if I was just doing a normal order from uh, my, my usual supermarket, they didn't have any. And I thought, oh, crumbs people aren't going to be able to cook this. So I thought, at least if I do both, then I can say, if you can't get white pudding but and aren't offended by black pudding and want to give it a try, then th it does or does not work. So I was lucky. I got some locally, but I also had a backup plan of black pudding as well. So, okay. Well, with the white pudding, just quickly mention now, I had a bit of a debate in my head whether you take the skin off or not right uh so yeah I haven't, I haven't cooked with white pudding previously so i was unsure of what the etiquette was there upon taking the skin off i realized it's actually like a plasticky kind of thing yeah i assume it's just a plastic wrap really uh, so i definitely made the right decision um but just going back to your point there do you have a preference uh, after making one with the black pudding and the white pudding I've always been a fan of the more flavorful black pudding because it's certainly much more of a, a prominent taste and aroma I find with black pudding over white pudding. I think white pudding is is good again from a from an entry level pudding uh, based product and I think the white pudding complements the flavors involved in the frittata in this week's uh, recipe of the week. The black pudding was very, very nice, but certainly overpowered the mushroom element, whereas I found the white pudding had just enough flavour to complement the mushroom. you still got mushroom coming through. you still got white pudding coming through. Um, the black pudding dominates uh, if you use it over white pudding. Uh, yeah, I, I may have to do uh, the similar thing to you and use some black pudding as well, just to be able to do a, uh, a proper taste comparison. But I really enjoyed the white pudding. Again, I thought I had had it previously, but actually I was mistaken to say that. Um, and the taste of it was very nice. It came through really well um, within the dish itself. It wasn't overpowered by anything, which is what I would prefer as well, because as you know, I'm not a massive um, mushroom fan. However, I just put my big boy pants on and got on with it and, you know, ate the whole thing. <laughs> but, um, but no, it was really nice. It's really nice to kind of find a bit of the white pudding in in the in the dish and you know enjoy that 
Um, and it did complement or go well with the mushrooms. Now, the other aspect of making a frittata, obviously, is is egg. So um, I'm, I'm sure you didn't have any issues getting hold of the egg uh, required for the dish. But my big twist this week, and this isn't a gimmick or anything like that, it's just so happened to be good timing, really. We actually managed to get hold of a ostrich egg uh, to make the frittata with, <laughs> rather somewhat randomly. Again, it wasn't, it's not a gimmick or anything, try to do anything different. But our, our friend who works at one of the local zoos uh, in Kent, she, um, they recently got female ostriches from um, an ostrich farm. And these birds are farmed to lay eggs. Now, I think going forward, the plan is to bring a male in who can help to fertilize the eggs and then therefore have uh, ostrich chicks. But at the moment where they just have females, they are unable to do that for obvious reasons. Um, this isn't a biology class, so we won't go into why. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you can all figure it out. Um, but as, um, as they are still laying, but they're not fertilized, they are taking away the eggs and then um, the keepers are using them to you know make food from so this friend of ours who actually is a podcast listener as well she does tune in each week so hello helen thank you very much for your support on this um and thank you very much for the egg as well so we use an ostrich egg and it's we um we enjoyed it like what i would say is it didn't really taste any different different the consistency is the same um I don't think it would make too much difference if you use an ostrich egg or a chicken egg. Um, I had a sort of concept that it might be slightly richer, but it wasn't particularly. But I do have a quick ostrich egg fact, Stu. Would you like one? Oh, hit me. I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, the ostrich is the world's largest bird, and it stands up to a massive 2.7 metres tall, or approximately 8 foot 8 inches, for those that understand that better. Um, it weighs in as much as 159 kilograms, or 350 pounds. And in comparison to the average chicken, who weighs in at 3.5 kg, or 8 pounds. Uh, so the ostr ostrich is actually about 45 times heavier than your average chook. So I'll ask you this, Joe. I'll put this out to you. How many eggs do you think an ostrich egg might equate to compared to a chicken's egg? Oh, crikey. So we have a big bird here. I mean, one would suggest potentially 45 times, but that might be a bit excessive if it's 45 times the weight. I'm going to go maybe um, 12, 13 eggs, maybe, for one ostrich egg. I anticipated this answer. I knew you'd say 45 times initially, because I know you're an accountant, so you're going to be very pragmatic about it, and you're going to think about the, you know, the difference between the size of the ostrich and the, the chicken. However, you you you're not correct. What was the final answer you said there? Sorry, I think twelve or thirteen me. was what I was okay. going for. So, as you can imagine, these birds being the largest bird, uh, they do lay the world's largest egg. But actually, in comparison to their body size to egg ratio, um, it's not as big as you might think. So it doesn't multiply by forty-five times, if you like. So their eggs can weigh up to one point five kg, which is a big egg. Um, this is the equivalent of about two dozen chicken eggs, actually. So that's about 24 chicken eggs in there. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of egg. It's a lot of eggs. So we only needed eight uh, or the equivalent of eight chicken eggs. So we actually had some left over where I used for, again, hashtag food waste. Uh, we, um, I actually used it to make scrambled egg and things like that afterwards. Um, so, yeah, it, it went to good use. Um, 
One more, one more little fact for you, Stu, and I'll put this out to you as well. How long do you think it might take to hard boil a ostrich egg? Four. So, how long do you think now, it takes I'm to think... generally to take a uh, chicken egg and turn it into a hard boiled egg? How long does that normally take? Like six to seven minutes for a normal, normal hard boiled egg. Maybe slightly yeah. uh, softer middle for that. I'd say for an ostrich egg, I wonder if the shell is thinner. I, I, as in, I'm wondering if it's more delicate than a a chicken egg. Therefore, the heat can transfer into it. I'm still going to go maybe 15 minutes as as a guest to, and and, and, a, and a massive pan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. That's a very good point. I haven't considered the uh, the practicalities of this. So, actually, you're way off on this one, Stu. It's. Um, the eggshell is very thick and the membrane is very thick as well. So it does take quite a while to kind of permeate through that, that eggshell and, and warm up the inner insides. It actually can take up to two hours, depending on the size of the egg, between an hour and a half, two hours to actually hard boil this uh, ostrich egg, um, which I won't be doing anytime soon, I don't think. Um, I was going to say, not <laughs> worth it. Not worth it. <laughs> Have you ever eaten ostrich? As, a, as an aside, before we get into our final thoughts on this recipe. Uh, I, I think I have, actually, yes. Yeah, um, it's quite uh, gamey, I guess, I suppose, is uh, my comparison. How, how have, you, have you? Yeah, I, I quite enjoy um, an ostrich burger now, now and again. I think it's sort of one of these meats that, especially people in sort of fitness and weightlifting seem to go for things like ostrich. It's very, like... You know, very sort of protein heavy, quite low fat in content as yeah, well. So it's quite sort of good lean meats, lean protein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I I quite like it, but I, it's the sort of thing that, if I'm honest, and apologies if this offends any of our vegetarian listeners, but I'm thinking, if in the wild, and I need to catch a chicken to survive, I need to catch an ostrich to survive. I'm going for the chicken. Is that because you fancy your chances against the chicken more than an ostrich by any chance? The chicken would outwit me, but I feel that once I catch the chicken, I've got a better chance of survival. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually worked with ostriches in the past, um, having been a zookeeper in a uh, previous, previous life, um, and I can testify that they are somewhat intimidating as an animal, actually, because they are, they are very tall, obviously. So they do kind of tower over you, but their movements are a little bit unpredictable, and they're kind of not afraid to get in your face so if you're in an enclosure that happens to have ostrich in there i mean best case scenario you can put them away but just the way that this particular enclosure worked we couldn't actually kind of move them into a safe area so if you happen to be working somewhere um and just so happens that an ostrich kind of clocks you there it will come over and try to sort of get in your face and try to get some food off you and things like that um and they were a bit of a nightmare to be honest i wasn't Sorry if I offend ostrich fans or any ostrich listeners out there, but I wasn't a massive <laughs> fan of working with them. Um, they can be occasionally quite volatile and, like I say, uh, potentially aggressive. But moving on from ostrich for a second, how was it to eat for you? I found it very, very tasty. I said my black pudding version was certainly a lot richer. I found it quite interesting because when I've made frittata in the past, I don't mix in double cream. So I think that added to the richness of the um, of the egg base and the frittata base to go th- through it. I like the fact that I c- I've had been able to have some as leftovers. I like the fact you can freeze it and reheat it. So you, again, you've got yourself dinners or lunches 
uh, for se several other portions with it. Um, I did fall foul of one element of the cooking, though. After saying and giving a warning last week that you needed an oven-proof pan to do it, yeah. uh, I came to the conclusion that since moving house in July last year, I haven't actually used my oven-proof pan to put in my new oven. My oven-proof pan is too big for my new oven. Ah. So I hedged my bets on using an old frying pan, which okay. survived the oven, luckily. So I was right. very happy. I was prepared, again, for a, for a backup plan. And this, is again, is the black pudding as the test and follow-up in case people don't have oven-proof pans, don't want to risk their frying pan in an oven-based scenario. So... For the white pudding version, as it says per the recipe, and again, that will be on our social media platforms at that food pod, uh, you move around the base until it starts to set, and then you put it in the oven for 10, 15 minutes to finish off. That's what I did with the white pudding one in the robust frying pan that survived. Very tasty. But with the black pudding one again, I thought, well, what if someone doesn't want to risk their frying pan or alternatively doesn't have the ability to do it? So what I've done in the past with frittatas, I chuck what you cook the bottom half, on the pan, on the hob, and then you chuck it under the grill for the second half. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with the black pudding one. And granted, it took a bit longer. Again, you can have the handle sticking out of the grill, so it's okay, so that part's not going to melt. And it worked just as well. I think the finish of the frittata, whether you oven it or whether you grill it, works just as well. And I said, from my standpoint, both really, really tasty, both very, very flavorful. Black pudding, obviously, certainly more overpowering than the white pudding. But it's definitely something that my wife, when we had this last night, both the white pudding section and the black pudding section, she said she would have it again for either white or black pudding. It's interesting you should say that because I actually went through the same process. I almost bought a ovenproof uh, casserole dish, which I, I think I will at some point, but I didn't uh, bite the bullet on this occasion. So I did use a pan, and it's a pan that we bought uh a month ago now, I guess, uh, for Pancake Day specifically, because our, fry our frying pan was getting to the point where uh, the non-stick element of it had just completely disappeared. So making pancakes or anything fun like that is just a complete nightmare. Just six to the pan. So we bought a new one. So I thought I would do, as you described there, half cooking it on the hob, half cooking it on the grill. And then actually what I ended up doing is kind of going between the two just to kind of cook it evenly and it worked out fine yeah it's really nice um i was wondering you know perhaps when i do eventually get the casserole dish uh just trying it as per the uh preferred method on this particular recipe um but from the sounds of things as you've done kind of both uh ways then um maybe not required so i guess we're getting to the point where we you know assess and you touched on this already but would you make it again? And um, if you if you were to make it again, would you make any changes? I'd make it again, definitely. I think it was very, very straightforward to make, very, very easy. I think once, as you said, if you've got the the oven-based pan, there's not as much to monitor because you just bang it in the oven, shut the door, leave it for 10, 15 minutes, check it's cooked, leave it to stand, pull it out, cut it into sections. Whereas if you're grilling it, you've got to monitor it a bit more to make sure, one, your hardware is not melting anywhere, and that it's actually cooking through because there were times where I pulled it out of the grill, did like the cake test in the middle, and I was like, "Oh, brilliant! This is all set." And then went to try and serve it, the the black pudding version. I was like, "Oh, actually, that's still a little bit scrambly in the middle." So then had to put it back in, in the grill. So it's a little bit more labour intensive if you're going to go under the grill. But 
I think the only thing I change as it suggests on the recipe is that sometimes people add onion to it just to add a bit more flavor, add a bit more to it. But if I had to have this again in its the state per the standard recipe, I'd happily eat it again because it's got black or white pudding in it and it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, so I was a little bit worried about burning the handle obviously with that brand new pan, but it's one of those, as long as you keep an eye on it, um, it makes it a bit more time intensive, but it is fine. Uh, so in terms of would I make it again, I have made variations of frittata dishes in the past and no doubt I'll make this type of dish again. Uh, really nice and easy to put together and even though I believe it is traditionally sort of eaten for breakfast or lunch, it can be eaten at any time of day. So it goes really nice with salad in the evening. Um, the novelty of cooking with white pudding and an ostrich egg as well was fun, uh, you know, however... Uh, I'm never in any rush to include mushrooms into a dish if I have my way. But again, on this occasion, I did put my big boy pants on and I got on with it <laughs> because it's <laughs> a part of this week's recipe and that's the rules. Um, but in the future, I probably would use something else, um, perhaps potato or or peppers. Um, so overall, I think, again, a huge success. And uh, if you did try this one at home, let us know on the usual contact method, um, social media at that food pod. Excellent. So um, moving on to obviously um, our contacts, and we made a, a bit of a reference to it on last week's pod. We had um, one of our listeners, uh, Simon Dixon from Virginia, had got in touch to talk about things like nutrition and pre-workout and things like that. And I think this week we're going to just have a little bit of a delve into some some other areas involving that and fitness, especially with your your, um, your nutritional background as well, Matt. It's quite interesting for our listeners to hear these sort of things. Yeah, it sounds like I'm showing off this week, doesn't it? Wrestler, <laughs> zookeeper, nutritionist. No, um, actually, I would never class myself as a nutritionist or dietitian. Um, people take years to qualify to be experts in these areas. So, what I have done, I have done personal training courses in the past, which does touch on nutrition, and I have done a specific nutrition course as well. Um, so I do have a background in it, and technically I am qualified to give advice on this. But again, you know, always contact your GP if you do need any specific help, especially when it comes to health complications um, and things like that. But um, what I can do is offer some general advice that hopefully will help you guys out. And specifically, this week, we, as uh, Stu said, we did receive an email from Simon in Virginia. Hello. And he wanted to know a bit more about nutrition and how it relates to exercise and specifically some supplements that he could take to complement his training. Firstly, I just want to point out that supplements should be treated as exactly that. So something to supplement your healthy, balanced diet. And being a food podcast, I'm going to give an overview of the commonly available supplements, but also, you know, food that we can eat to achieve our nutritional goals as well. So, again, you know, looking at a balance. Um, but first, let's just, you know, check some background, make sure we have a baseline of understanding. So we're all on the same page. And because the subject of nutrition and supplements is it's massive, um, I'm going to break this down over, you know, a, a series of few weeks. So. But we will today establish a bit of a, a baseline, if we like. Um, so I used the phrase nutritional goals earlier, and it's important to get the right nutritional balance in order to achieve your fitness aspirations. But what do we mean by nutrients? So firstly, we have the 
macronutrients, okay? So macro means big. And in this case, macronutrients are nutrients that we need to get from our food in larger quantities. So specifically, and it's, you know, words that we've used in the past on this podcast, you know, specifically fat, carbohydrate, and protein. And that's the stuff that the body uses for uh, structure, function, and fuel. And then we move on to micronutrients, okay? So they are, um, micro means small. So they are micronutrients, and it's the stuff that we need in our diet in smaller quantities, that is vitamins and minerals, uh, for example, vitamin C to support our immune system and calcium for strong bones. Um, but before we press on, Stu, uh, do you know or would you like to take a guess at how many calories, and we're thinking back to macronutrients now, how many calories there are per gram in each of the macronutrients? So I'm referring to, just to refresh your memory there, protein, carbs, and fats. How many calories per gram do you think there are in each of those macronutrients? Oh, God. That's going to be... I mean, this is going to be completely out there. So, oh, 10 per gram for carbs, maybe? Uh, 15 for fats? 8 for protein? Maybe... I'm really... Possibly... The, I mean, I, I'm going to be so far out on all of this. <laughs> it's... I, I can see your logic. So, you, you went with fat has more calorie per gram than carbs and protein and that that makes sense and you're you're correct in that sense so protein and carbs actually have four calories uh, per gram and then fats it does jump up quite a bit to nine calories per per gram of fat content in your food so which is why you know fats are quite often vilified and something that you have to maybe pay attention to uh, if you're dieting and the reason I bring this up is because known as information tracking how much of each macronutrient you consume on a daily basis can play an important role in achieving your body goals. Although, admittedly, this is a bit fiddly and time-consuming. So I haven't personally gone down this route too much myself. And I generally regulate my diet sort of instinctually. But people do track micronutrients and calories religiously to great success. And with apps, and I think you use, use this app, Stu, uh, MyFitnessPal, it is actually easier than ever to do this type of tracking. So whilst on the surface of things, it might put people off. Actually, you know, it does work for people. So you've had experience using MyFitnessPal. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that at all? So with MyFitnessPal, I set myself, um, probably around May last year, I set myself a goal of trying to consume 1,500 calories a day but whilst also um, on the free version of the app you can also monitor your fat carb and protein intake and sort of the percentages you aim for for the day so um, my goals are set by my fitness pal it's supposed to be 50 percent carbs 30 percent fat and 20 percent of my daily intake should be protein to have a look on the little flow chart um, you can scan the barcodes of anything or most things, and it comes up with a calorific value. You can weigh out per gram. And I found it very easy for checking things. But at the same time, um, and I know we always seem to vilify cereal on this podcast, and you know, <laughs> cereal is delicious, but it's amazing that I was like, oh, well, here's what a bowl of you know, honey nut cornflakes would be, how I would have it. And then you put that into the, the app, the MyFitnessPal app, and then you look at the calorific intake, of this, especially the sugar content of that, essentially double-sized bowl. And then you think, crikey, although I'm looking at, well, 
you know, 250 calories for a breakfast isn't that bad. When you start looking at the sugar content, and that's what the app does to help you. It just makes you think. I like to, I like to, it keeps me accountable for how I do things throughout the day. So if I know I'm going to have a takeaway in the evening, I'm not going to go and have an indulgent breakfast or some something at lunch or maybe a chocolate bar or a can of fizzy at lunch just to, you know, because I'm tired, I'll be like, right, if I'm going to be having a takeaway this evening, that's going to blow my 1,500 calories a day. But as long as I can keep relatively under control through the day, put in a workout as well, then it's it's going to keep things going. But again, I don't live by it at the moment. It's more of just a guide. And also, I find it useful, again, that from an evening standpoint, if I go still a bit peckish what should I have then I can look at my percentages for the day and go oh well if I've I've got certain let's say I need to get some more carbs in to balance it around it helps me select what I'm going to have as an evening snack if I so need it to essentially go for the average of what my body should be having in that day yeah so it sounds like it works for you and I've used it I have used in the past in terms of I'll just do a week block of just checking what I'm eating and then kind of basing my instinctual eating uh, off of that a little bit as well. So I kind of know what's, how many calories I'm having, how much fat, protein and carbs I'm having on a weekly basis with my general diet that I eat and then try to keep things ticking over from there. And then I might do that, you know, once or twice a year. Um, so whilst I may not track religiously and some people do, and again, if you do struggle with weight, and I'm not saying Stu does at all, but if you do, if that's something that you're conscientious of, it is potentially a good tool for you to jump into and have a look at however if there is an exception to my instinctive eating approach I would have to say that rightly or wrongly I generally pay closer attention to my protein intake uh, than anything else and this is kind of you know maybe touching on something that Simon in Virginia would be uh, more pressing towards when he asked this question Um, so I'm going to turn my attention to protein for the time being and we will sort of float around and look at different areas and different um, supplements as well in the future Uh, but protein is a nutrient that most people are keen to increase when entering into a new exercise program so uh, protein is known as the building blocks of life and is important for uh, growth and development and as we become more active it's generally recommended that we increase our daily intake of protein to help with recovery and growth of our muscles uh, for for example, just to give some context here, a sedentary individual, someone who doesn't train or does minimal exercise, only really requires about 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight each day. And then you look at the top end of that scale and we're sort of thinking about strength athletes um, or individuals uh, who are trying to build muscle. And this is referring to adults, I should say, rather than children. They require between 1.6 and 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. However, most people will fall into a uh, into the category known as recreational adult exerciser, and this group of people require between 0.8 and 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight uh, per day. So, Stu, just turn this over to you for a second. Um, how much do you weigh currently in kilograms, please? So I'm around the 84 kilogram mark at the moment. So for that's about 185 pounds in other money. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So let's stick with kg. So 84. 
And for the purpose of this exercise, we'll class you as a recreational adult exerciser and we'll put you at the top end of the scale because I know you are very active. I still receive notifications on my watch every time you've done a workout. So (laughs) I I know how active you are and you do work out a lot. So um, well done for keeping active. But so what we'll do is we'll take Stu's weight, 84 uh, kilograms, and we'll multiply that by 1.5 gram of the required protein. Um, And that equals 126 grams so just did a quick calculation there 84 times 1.5 is 126 grams you do that in your head now <laughs> you're the accountant <laughs> <laughs> no i had my calculator in front of me <laughs> phones are a wonderful thing aren't they um so i tend to go for a little bit more just because I focus my efforts on bodybuilding. Now, it does depend on what uh, what phase I'm in, if you like, but I, I do focus on bodybuilding. Uh, so that requires a little bit more protein in order to get a growth in muscle mass. Uh, so I'm looking at about 152, just for a little bit of comparison there, maybe. So I'd kind of put myself at the top end there, maybe 1.9 grams of protein. But again, just for most people, they'll fall into that sort of recreational user, which is between 0.8 and 1.5 gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. So if there's any confusion there, always just kind of err on a side of caution and go for that recreational use. Now, um, so that is potentially quite a bit of protein to get into your body each day, but it is very much achievable. So again, for some context here, there is approximately about 24 grams of protein per 100 gram of cooked chicken breast. And this can vary. So, you know, don't get too hung up on these figures, but that's a rough kind of number there. Um, But what if you don't have the time to cook or don't fancy eating multiple meals that day? And, you know, this is quite often the way, especially, you know, when we get start going back to, uh, you know how how life has you know should be perhaps when we're a little bit busier and able to go out and about and things and, and you know working away from home more often um so in my case i certainly have reached for a protein shake to supplement my protein intake along with my diet as well which i'll just I, I would have and i'm not alone either so um do you want to take a rough estimate how many adults in the uk might have uh reach for a supplement in the or protein supplement in the past three months in the past three months oh i'm gonna go maybe three four million so uh as a fraction we would say one in four people in the uk alone has uh consumed a sports protein product in the last three months and on average uk consumers spend about 66 million pounds on sports nutrition products wow uh and that's in recent years and globally um it's a multi-billion dollar industry as well so it's huge business it's a huge huge business street so if you do fancy doing a little side project maybe that's the way to go <laughs> yeah i mean the thing is as you said before so um i'm no stranger to the concept of protein shakes or buff shakes as i used to call them because when i lived with my flatmate martin years and years ago he was a very like again very into lifting you know very very much body conscious he always had these buff shakes but he would always say these are disgusting but i drink them <laughs> because he did them with water not milk to again just keep the calorie count down for what he was doing but for example like the shakes that i've got now in, in comparison to even what i had three four years ago the ability to actually have them palatable i wouldn't say i sit there and go oh i'm really looking forward to my butterscotch buff shake i'd go 
I will drink my butterscotch buff shake and it will be fine. For if I, especially if I'm going to be doing lifting workouts during the day, I just want to make sure that I'm going to get the maximum benefit of those lifts. But yeah, some of them are rancid. <laughs> they have improved a lot over the years. So I've been using supplements to go along with my training for a long time. I suppose since I was 17, I'm 37 now. So, you know, a good 20 years. So I have kind of seen a difference in how they taste. They used to be very chalky. Uh, they are made uh, to a lot better standard now uh, in terms of taste. But, I mean, it's interesting you should say that because what I'm going to, you know, what we need to look at then is consider, you know, when we're buying these protein supplements, you know, what and whatever considerations we should take on board uh, to kind of reach these healthiest or reach the healthiest version of ourselves is how do we make sure that we're getting good quality protein? Um, and I'll also be relating this not just to supplements, but you know, food and uh, other protein sources. And protein sources if you're vegan or vegetarian as well. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying to cover all bases here. So what we're actually going to do is I'm going to leave this on a bit of a cliffhanger. Next week, we'll be looking at, again, how to get hold of a good quality, good quality protein and some of the best places to source protein from. So, you know, there we have it, Stu. This week, um, a little bit of an overview, uh, a little bit of um, some baseline checking, make sure we're all on the same page. Um, and just something to start getting our heads into the idea of nutrition and supplements to move forward with. But once again, I just want to highlight, and I just want us to be sort of, the thing that hopefully most people remember is that, you know, while supplements can play an important role you know, especially if you're training for a specific goal or if your body even has a natural deficiency to a particular vitamin and mineral, um, I think it's equally important to promote the importance of a healthy, balanced diet. So, Stu, I know you're a gentleman who enjoys exercise and you've already mentioned that you have jumped on um, using your buff shakes and butterscotch boys as well. Big shout <laughs> out to them. Um, have you ever tried any other supplements at all or have you been tempted to try anything? The only other thing that I've tried um, and will be focusing and trying more of as part of our food podcast, I've got some tablets called Ultra CLA, which is supposed to be like a fat binding agent to to help boost metabolism and try and help eradicate some more of... um, some more of that body fat. Um, I was waiting really until I started my new job next week because I know I'd be permanently home-based because I know sometimes when you start taking these supplements in line with things, they can have some interesting effects on your digestive system. So I thought at least if I'm at home full-time, I'm all ready to give it a go. And then I wanted to essentially from Monday onwards, I was going to return back to a 1,500-calorie lifestyle and obviously upping the weights that I lift because my goals now, obviously I'm trying to get essentially more of that traditional V shape. So I'm quite happy, again, upper body lift. I obviously want to build my strength as well. Um, but I'm trying to now focus on the essentially getting rid of the rest of that muffin top, trying to tone that, that middle section, try and burn as much fat as possible. So going for a reduced calorie intake but also again making sure that i'm doing it in a very very healthy and maintainable way because i think the thing that 
a lot of our listeners would have found if they tried these things before, especially with things like MyFitnessPal or any other counting thing like a Weight Watchers kind of thing or a Slimming World. It's very easy from my standpoint, especially if you've got a lot of excess weight to go. You start for the first couple of weeks and you're dropping maybe two, three pounds a week and you're like, it's falling off. It's great. But then you get complacent. And this is the things that we've spoken to people again. And you've trained people at, at wrestling and in, in general PT side of things where the weight falls off to start with and then they plateau a little bit. So it's really now I set the goal of this year. I wanted to hit 12 stone um, at, at the, by New Year's Eve, I probably Christmas Eve, because obviously I'm not going to shun Christmas food next year. And then I realized that's only going to be like just under a pound a week. And if I can do it in a manageable way, rather than just like hit it for three weeks, drop a ton of weight, and then see people just gradually start loosening their their discipline. If I can just do it gradually like that and just have the long-term goal, because I think that's the problem people find, especially when it comes to nutrients and these buff shakes and the meal replacement stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into in the future weeks and months of the pod. It's good for a short-term fix if that's your goal. If you try, And it always bothers me when people go, oh, I'm going to try and get this done for my holiday then you're just going to put it all back on and more after your holiday. It's about trying if that's what you want to do with your goal, if that's a goal you want to set. Set it as a long-term, have those short-term goals to get started, medium and long-term goals, because that's how you're going to continue to have that healthy lifestyle. And supplements will play a role, but it's not something I've focused on purely. But in what I'm calling Stu's body guy experiment, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try and use these supplements between now and Christmas time of 2021 to see what results I can get from now until then as a long running project as well for the pod. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, you'd be aiming to lose a pound a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you add that up, it all accumulates. And that's the important thing. And this is where these crash diets don't really work because people, as, as you've already mentioned, do tend to put it back on. Actually, I'd highly recommend, um, just as a, a quick aside before we get into the uh, recipe of the week, that um, if you are interested in this, and if you have tried diets in the past which have failed, and I know it's moving maybe slightly away from um, some of the supplement stuff I was touching on, but I do highly recommend watching um, a program. It's a one-off program on Netflix called Why Diets Fail, and it's a part of the Explained series on Netflix, so... I think it only lasts about 15 minutes, so it's really palatable, very easy to sit down and watch. And it summarises, you know, why diets don't always work. And it created a really, uh, a real like light bulb moment for me when I watched it as well. And it, not for me, because I've never, I've been very fortunate, I've never struggled with weight, and I know how lucky I am there. Uh, but just for kind of maybe advising other people. And there's a really nice quote at the end, actually. It comes from a lady called Marion. Nestle and she's a professor of nutrition and it goes like this and I did write this down uh, word for word so it might might seem a bit disjointed because it's just as she said it but you know hopefully the message come across anyway so she said that diets can work you just have to have fewer calories and sustain it and that's again just touched on that point that's the key sustain it there's no magical diet that helps everybody do that it really comes down to this dietary advice is really simple you eat fruit and veg you don't eat too much junk food and you balance caloric intake with the kind of activity level that you have 
you try to eat unprocessed food to the extent that you can, it really isn't any more complicated than that. So again, it touches on what you said about trying to make it sustainable. It's about being balanced and it's about staying away from unprocessed food. And I would add, and I do like alcohol, and I, you know, but I would possibly add, you know, if you are struggling with weight, stay away from the alcohol as well. But honestly, I recommend it to everyone. Check out Why Diets Fail on Netflix. Really simple watch. Um, head over there and check that out when you can. But saying that, Stu, something that's <laughs> not going to help, <laughs> not going to help with our diet and training in one little bit, but it will be quite fun, hopefully, to make uh, the dish of the week. Yeah. I am looking forward to living off uh, bison grass for the day to make sure I can eat whatever <laughs> we're going to be cooking. <laughs> so this week we are set to celebrate Red Nose Day Comic Relief 2021, uh, which takes place in the UK at the time of recording this podcast, at least uh, this Friday on the 19th of March. So Comet Relief work with a variety of charities, including those that help bring children and families out of poverty and also mental health charities, amongst lots of other things too, which we'll touch on next week a bit more. So I thought it would be really fun to make a Red Nose related recipe. So this week we'll be taking a departure once again from the savoury dish, sorry about that, Simon, and we'll be making shortbread, Whey! but not just any old. Hey, but not just any old shortbread. It's going to be Red Nose Day shortbread that actually look a little bit like jammy dodges. And Ooh. since that's one of my favourite biscuits, I'm very much looking forward to trying to recreate recreate them in my own kitchen. Oh, and as an added bonus, Stu, I thought since we can't do a bake sale. Uh, we'll donate a few quid to Red Nose Day as well on behalf of That Food Podcast this Friday as the smell of shortbread permeates our nostrils. How does that sound, Stu? Maybe a good one to do with Harriet? Yep, sounds good. So I, as said at the moment, I have finished my previous job and I start my new job on Monday. So I was looking for something to do this Friday. So shortbread creation on the day of Red Nose Day with, with everyone sounds very, very good. We'll post the recipe up on all our social media platforms at that food pod again if you want to email us you've got any questions send us an email that food podcast at gmail.com and like some people have already done already on the various podcast platforms thank you very much for those of you who have left us five star reviews thank you so much who have actually left and taken the time to write reviews um, our numbers are good we're really really happy that you guys interact with us and enjoy what we put out there if there's things you'd like to see us and like to talk about like simon dixon from virginia said we're happy to look into them for you. And, you know, we're having a blast in this podcast and I'm looking forward to cooking shortbread. As am I. Thanks again, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.